Hello and welcome to Property Mastermind Podcast with Hilary Saxton. This week covering off three questions we've had emailed and emailed into us. The first one is around finding sites. The second one is around transitioning into development for or into retirement, but still doing development and how you could do that. And the last one is around the internal rate of return. That one's going to be a great one. We'll discuss it in the podcast. Let's jump on in. everybody welcome to episode 55 yay hey giving away the book property millionaires exposed as we do every week so if you'd like to win a copy comment favorably favorably send us an email send us your question um, give us five star raving reviews share us with a friend whatever it is you need to do you go on the draw to win this week it goes to Alejandro Mikon now I spoke to Alejandro this week he was uh, wondering wondering about getting into development and wondered if uh, we were the right people for him we told him exactly we were the right people for him uh, we care a lot about our community so anyway Alejandro this book is in the post to you today now welcoming as usual uh, my amazing guest Mr. Bob Anderson, the legend, uh, 38 years in property development. We think it might even be more than that now. He said he's been saying that for a year or two. And just a legend, still um, not retiring, still developing, still working. We're working in every state. We've got students in every state, and we do um, an amazing job. And you, Bob, do an incredible job. So why not answer a few questions from people that have come in? Great opportunity to do that. Let's do it. Great, we can do it on a podcast because people get to learn the answers in as opposed to you know just answering somebody individually. Exactly, we do have a live Q and A every fortnight with one of our with our bundle programs. So if you're mm. interested in joining our community where you can ask questions, it's in a closed Facebook group and um, it's a load of fun, an absolute load of fun. But anyway, I'll get started. The first question Bob came in from Ben, and this is what he says: I have recently watched some of your the videos that you and Bob do and found them very informative. Thank you, Ben. My partner and I are property investors and have done a range of developments from simple subdivisions up to eight townhouses. Well, that's pretty amazing, eight townhouses. Well Mm. done, guys. Over the last 12 months, I've managed to secure two properties at a great price, but it has proven very difficult and both have had very complex settlements with funds withheld, etc. Oh, that's not so great. We've tried a number of techniques to secure off-market properties, like getting on all of the real estate agents' markets lists, and we've done our own letterbox drops as well. I'm hoping that you might be able to suggest some other techniques that could be worth trying. Bob? Yes, off-market deals. Well, what we're talking about there, in case you're not uh, familiar with the term, on-market means that they're publicly available, agents have them listed, they're probably on you know real estate com and domain they're in the agents window so they're out there off-market deals are ones that aren't publicly advertised mm. they might be able to be purchased but they're not out there mm. and they're good to get because there's less pressure you know, can imagine going to an auction and having to fight for a site very different if you can find an off-market one where particularly if you can deal directly with the owner so i mean my mind goes straight to buyers agents when you think about off-market deals, because buyer's agents, they're they're people who represent the purchaser, not normal real estate agents who represent the seller. And you can engage them, you have to pay them something, of course. Uh, But they they often have avenues that they've built up where they can get 
off-market deals. And I think, uh, you know, I'm quite in favour of buyer's agents, good ones, people, you know, ones that know what they're about, and uh, particularly if they understand development sites. So I'm, I'm very in favour of using buyer's agents. But you made a really good point there, Bob. I was talking with a mentoring student yesterday afternoon and we were discussing an, a, a patch she's looking at and I we were talking about buyer's agents and finding one in that patch and she mentioned a few things and I, I do know somebody who lives in that area um, in Australia and I sent a friend of mine a message and said, uh, would you recommend a good buyer's agent in that area? And he goes, no, they're all not great but try <laughs> this person here for another reason. So it, I think the point is finding a good buyer's agent. There has, there's a lot of buyer's agents sort of out at the moment. They're new off. I think somebody's had a course mm. maybe. And yeah, the last couple of years there has been uh, courses on how to become a buyer's agent, which is fine, nothing wrong with that. It's just that it, it draws a lot of inexperienced people into that space. Mm. And so I'd be looking for somebody who's been a buyer's agent uh, for, you know, three or four years or more. And or maybe someone has held a role where they've got plenty of connections. You've mm. got to have, be able to have a network of people that you can reach out to. Yeah, and I've seen some good real estate agents move out of normal real estate agency to become a buyer's agent. Mm. So they've got plenty of experience as well. Uh, good, good if they have, uh, because they would have built up good contacts over that period of time. And hopefully they'll know a good, uh, a good deal, a good site when they come across it. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, we've had students in our in our uh, in our program who've successfully used buyers agents to yeah. get off market deals. Mm. Yeah, you're thinking of a couple there. Oh, yeah, in uh, fact, we've got oh, one student who's amazing. Yeah, tell uh, me about that one. Should we say her name? I think she listens, and we've seen her name a few times. She's <laughs> like, "Don't embarrass me," uh, but she, but she likes it, so I can say her name. Tanya's done really well with connecting with her buyers agent, who now wants to start recommending her. As uh, like development, like you know, project giving out managing. project managing and yeah. so. Yeah. How good is that? Yeah, she's done such a, a great job with making that relationship, mm. and she's such a professional woman, and you know, she's working with us. She knows what she's up to. Absolutely, and I'm thinking of another person who's recently in our mentoring program. They spent quite a bit of time spinning tires, mm. you know, looking for deals, not quite finding them. And I think it was you who said, "Look, just get out there and get a good buyer's agent." She did, and I reckon it was within a I'm, month or, oh, or say, less. I'm saying two weeks. Two weeks. Probably took them longer to pick their buyer's agent than it did for their buyer's agent oh, to yeah. bring them a property that worked. Yeah, and it did. That's another thing, though. That I, on my last sentence there was uh, a property that worked. You have to remember that buyer's agents don't necessarily know how to do the numbers correctly. That's your job. Definitely. You have to take responsibility for your own due diligence. Yeah. But if they can you know, drop something in your lap that you can look at, uh, straight away, and that's certainly the way to go. Mm. Um, what do they charge, boys agents? What are the ones you, you've had experience with? Well, some are a percentage and some are a fee up front. They, they do vary a bit. Mm. I think like two, two and a half, probably two and a half percent of the purchase price. That's what I've been paying. But mm. some flat rates. Mm. I mean, I've, It's I've, mostly that percentage, isn't it? Well, it's often the percentage, yeah, but it, as, as prices rise, you know, as properties go up, Sometimes you're better off with a flat rate. Like, like I know a buyer's agent who charges a flat rate. In fact, I know two that charge a flat rate of 15000 mm. which if you think if it's a million-dollar site, and that's not an expensive site anymore, 2% of that's 20, mm. two and a half is 25, the flat rate of fifteen. So at the end of the day, though, like I, I, I don't concentrate too much on the dollar value of the fee. I'm more mm. interested in, in their ability to find me a really mm. good site because, you know, what's, what's $5,000? in the big scheme of things, if they can get you a really good site. And if they can negotiate on your behalf, which is mm. another thing they can do as well. And quite because often... Because not everyone likes to negotiate. 
No, no, often they don't, and, and they're not necessarily good at it. Whereas a good buyer's agent is a good negotiator. Mm. And my attitude is that let's say they charge fifteen, eighteen, twenty thousand dollars, they should be able to negotiate that off the price just with their own skills. Mm. And so, in a way, uh, they're covering their fee and their ability to negotiate and get a good deal. And that goes back to their experience. And I know it's that tough line, you know, if you're new to something, but you need to. The experience doesn't, you know, have to be from just buyer's agent. It could be something you've done in the past that adds to your ability to be good at what you do. Mm. But, yeah. yeah. Actually, can I, can I say about that? We've never had bad comments on any of our stuff, eh? We're like, we only have five-star reviews, yeah. all our Google reviews. Never had a 4.9 Nah, No funny person go do that. And the other day, a, a new buyer's agent, because I looked at their comment, because they put a sarcastic comment under one of our posts. And uh, I looked them up and they were a buyer's agent who was new. And we figured they were just after some free advertising. They wanted us to oh, react. Yeah, yeah. But we just deleted you. So you deleted. Your comment was, if you're listening, remember they said, she said, oh, from a 20-year-old course? We're like, <laughs> oh, my God, it's Australia's most popular course. People, if you read, if you look at our recommendations and read our reviews. So. Yeah, constantly up, constantly up to date. Oh, my goodness. And, anyway, and, so and from somebody who's never been part of our community, never bought a course. Yeah. yeah well, that one went out as a... Straight out, Straight out, <laughs> out the back door. Oh, we roll our eyes. Stuff. Yeah, but we figured that was sometimes people want a way to become known. So mm. you know, it's better to become known in a positive way than in a negative way. Oh, don't give that any more oxygen. No, anonymous. Well, they can't see their name. We took yeah, it yeah. So, I mean, we talk about buyers agents, but, you know, the things that buyers agents do, we can do ourselves if we're prepared to put in the time and effort. You know, I'm thinking mm. about... Well, particularly, let's say, sites that are getting a development permit. Mm. Who, who, who would be involved in that? Well, obviously the landowner, but architects. Architects are working on getting a development permit for somebody, town planners. Mm. Uh, and, and also if they're subdivisions, civil engineers. And, and so if we were to contact a number of architects, town planners, civil engineers, those sorts of people who could be working on development permits, and, and a lot of buyers agents have a network of these people, mm. They can pick up deals off market before they become available because the thing is, a number of people get a development permit purely with the intention of selling it with a development permit. They have no intentions of going on and developing it. And there's also the opportunity that some people might want to, but circumstances change. Mm. You know, jobs change, life changes, got busy, whatever. Yeah, there's a reason that they can't think. Can't finance, who knows? So they just want to sell it on. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And so the people that are working on these development permits, those professionals, mm. they know their client and they'll assumedly know that their client's just getting the development permit to flick it, to sell it. Mm. And, uh, you know, over the years I've had you know, great deals thrown up to me by architects, town planners, engineers and the like. So, yeah, that's a, you know, that's a, good, a good source. That's what buyers agents do as well. They have networks of those people. So if you're time poor, that's what they will do for you. But if you mm. wanted to do it yourself, you could. What about tracking DA applications for Oh, that's council? a good one. Yeah. yeah. The Better Council websites, you can track development approvals as they go through. So what you'd need to do there is, well, go on site. Some councils issue, I'm thinking of our local one where we live, mm. uh, you, you can go on there and have a look at all the development permits that were lodged in the last 30 days mm. and then beyond that period of time, all the ones that are in council. Uh, I think of other websites where they actually tag them, where within the council uh, website, you can go into a mapping system and it'll tag all the different places that, that have development, current development permits or permits uh, going through. 
Same thing, because what you can do off that, uh, you can see who the applicant is. Now, the applicant might be the landowner, who's the person you want to talk to, or it might be the town planner. Well, if it's a town planner, you can approach the town planner and say, look, I see you've got a development permit going through. We're developers. We're always looking for deals. Uh, is your client intending to develop or, or sell? Uh, and, you know, you might, they might put you in contact, particularly if they're going to sell. Mm. And so those, they, you know, tracking those DAs can be a really good way as well because I, I've bought a number of sites over the years off market where they're getting a development permit, and it gives you the time to talk to the owner to come up with a deal. And then when it gets the development permit, as long as it's got the right conditions, you can settle. And uh, I've done that because it gives you the time to do the due diligence. You're not in, under any pressure. And when you pick it up with a development permit, of course, you've got a big head start. Mm. And uh, so you're not, you don't have those holding costs well, you know, for five, six, seven, eight, nine months while you're getting a DA as well. So you, your margin, your profit margin is better. Mm. Yeah, that's a, a really great tip. So this is some of the things that buyers agents do that that you can do and yeah, for getting off market deals that's yeah yeah the, that's but yeah the subject's about. that's where we're heading to or that's yeah. what we're on about really yeah um and another one is um is property managers mm. you think about property managers uh, who obviously manage rental properties you know some of the big property managers have thousands i mean i'm thinking of one i know they've got six thousand uh wow. properties on their books yep. i'm thinking of you know some smaller one one person operations they might have two or three or four hundred Every one of those clients of that property manager is a landlord. They're a property investor. And so a lot of them have land that does have development potential. Mm. Some of them would be interested in selling. Some of them would be interested in perhaps a joint venture. And uh, often when when a landlord sells a property, they often sell it back through their managing agent. Mm. It's just an easier operation for inspections and everything. So to form relationships with property managers I mean, that's the thing that good buyers agents do, but something we could do ourselves. And I've certainly picked up some good deals over the years uh, through. How many times have you said that today, Bob? Oh, I've picked up a lot oh, of deals oh, over yeah. the years. I've picked up a few <laughs> good deals. Yeah, you have. Yeah, picked up and, a few and look, once you get a little bit a little bit more confident and a little bit bolder, uh, you could run uh, little um, presentations. Like I've done that many mm. years ago when I was you know building up a database of clients. I ran boardroom meetings for. Uh, in, in usually at the property manager's place, you know, they might have a, like a boardroom, a meeting room, we can get eight or 10 people or have it at a, you know, at a local hotel or somewhere, a little PowerPoint presentation where I presented uh, a, a little bit about property development and then, and then see who's interested, who's got sites that they want to sell or who would be interested in doing joint ventures on their own land. And, uh, well, I suppose you think of even those, like a, a rental property that somebody has, could have the potential for like a subdivide, mm, you know, and that would be a great job. It could be venture. simple. Yeah. And a lot of landlords are sitting on old properties mm. that are costing them a lot of money because of all the maintenance that's going on. And they could get rid of that old house and end up with, you know, four new uh, townhouses. Mm. And that could be a joint venture for you where you both get, uh, you know, the benefits of two, the profits out of two each, uh, using their land if they've got low debt. You don't even put any money in the deal, but that's another. But these are just... You know, different ways of getting to deals off market. Mm. Uh, and and it, the big advantage, like I said, is it gives you the time to to get the deal set. Mm, I think what's come up there when we were talking about both buyer agent, a buyer's agent and doing it yourself or buyer's advocate, depending on the state you're in, is that we talked about they've got a network of people and they communicate. They've got, a, they can reach out and that's, that's business. People, 
you need to have the ability to have a conversation. If you're shy, you've got to get over that. It's about being out there. And if you can't do that, then you must employ somebody else to do it for you. And that's okay. If it's beyond you, that side of it, that's beyond you. And that's fine. Sometimes you're better off doing, well, you're always better off doing what you're best at. Hmm. I mean, the alternative is just to use real estate agents. Hmm. And and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, But, yeah, there'll be competition for the site. Hmm. Uh, you might be able to form some good relationships with agents where you get first quick look at it. You know, they know a property's coming on the market and uh, it's going to be listed, let's say, in three days' time officially. Well, they might give you the head start. And if you're quick enough, if it's good enough, you can do your due diligence. You might be able to sneak yourself in there. But there was another wee little tip there, Bob. If you're quick enough and good enough and have done your due diligence, that means being buyer ready, mm. uh, which means having finance sorted, which means having structures sorted, which means having due diligence in your patch nailed. Absolutely. And that's, they are three major things that your people must do. And otherwise, that you're not jumping in, buying something that doesn't necessarily work because you think you think it's a good idea. How many, you've got to have a think in life. How many good ideas have you had that kind of weren't good ideas? Mm. Well, <laughs> if you get this idea wrong, it can be expensive. Because yeah, exactly. We, you know, we're talking about a lot of money. It's not just like that extra wine where you do something silly. No. no, <laughs> no, no, no. A little bit more expensive. Not that much fun. No. Um, so, is that, I think that's the yeah, end I of... I think that covers. That's, that's a, some good tips there on getting off market there. deals. Yeah, okay. So, question number two, and they didn't say their name. Well, I didn't copy it when they sent, sent it in. Hi, clever people. We like you straight away. Uh, yours is my fave by far of all the real estate advice, blog, vlog, and YouTubers. Nice. We like you even more. Hey, I've got a question. My, my partner and I are asset rich but cash poor at the moment. I love that word at the moment. That means things will change. We want to transition into semi-retirement. I'd like to know the pitfalls and advantages of property development once your regular wage income slows and you're relying on rental returns from your assets and still wanting to build a portfolio. Big question, I know, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Mm, Okay, so what we're talking about here is moving from a paid job where we can produce you know, our, our tax returns to the bank, they can calculate our serviceability. So asset rich and cash poor, well, that, that's okay. Um, not everyone's perfect, but, you know, as in, not everyone's <laughs> got, rich is still got, good. Assets, got cash, not yeah. everyone's ready for everything. No, so c- congratulations, first of all, yeah. on, on building up a good asset base. Yes. And a lot of people don't get to do that for various reasons, and, and you have, so well done. Uh, and now they want to make that transition period. Uh, and, and that's good too. So how do we do this? Well, we still want to develop. So some people might build up a, an asset base. Uh, they've got low debt. Therefore, they've got income off those properties and uh, and they want to live off that income. Maybe, you know, a little bit of supplementary income from somewhere else. But what we're talking about here is, is still being a serious property developer mm. uh, once you left your day job. So let's just have a look. This is about finance. Hey? This is really about yeah. finance, this question. Yeah. And so let's have a look at what normally happens when we, finance-wise, when we do a development. So when we buy a development site, and it, look, it could be a house on a block of land that we're just gonna uh, split into two lots. It could be a house on a block of land that we're going to build townhouses or, or even a giant, you know, a big apartment block. When we first buy the site, it's usually just a good old fashioned residential investment purchase. Mm. You think about it. Going to buy a house, maybe knock it down, build three, four townhouses. Going to buy a house, 
uh, maybe knock it down, cut into two lots. And what we do after that is up to us, sell the lots, build houses or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's just that nearly always what we're buying, as far as the finance is concerned, is an investment property. To us, it's a future site that we're going to get approvals on and develop. But as far as the finance is concerned, it's just an investment. So that's a normal retail bank purchase. Mm. The same as it is when we bought any other investment or even our own home. And so the two requirements there are deposit and serviceability. We have to prove that we can pay the interest every month. And, the, and I suppose from where they were coming from, as in working into semi-retirement and not having that cash flow, it sounds like serviceability could be their issue. Yeah. And so the only serviceability you would be showing would be rental off your investments. Mm. And, you know, that, that there might be quite a number of investments or they might be high yielding. You know, they could be an NDIS product. They could be commercial where the, you know, where the yield is higher. But whatever it is, that's the income. And if that's not sufficient because remember the banks will work out all your living expenses and everything else and and, and they'll come to you know an amount of money that's left how much you spend on shoes how much you spend on shoes yeah all that. Much <laughs> and so that mightn't be enough so what do we do we've hit a snag there mm. uh, now the good news is that uh no doc loans still exist they do and we've just had one of our mentoring students Get a cracker of a no-doc. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a good no-doc. I mean, a lot of people think that, you know, no-doc loans disappeared after the GFC. Well, they did at We banks. need to explain what a no-doc loan is. Okay. And a no-doc loan, it really covers the, the, the issue of serviceability because uh, not, normally when you have to prove serviceability, you, you know, you have to get your tax returns, you have to get income slips, show how much you earn. They'll take off what they consider to be all your normal expenses uh, and... Uh, and what you got left is what you can spend on, on the mortgage. Uh, whereas with a no-doc, you don't need to support that information. There are low-docs, but I'm talking about a no-doc, N-O-D-O-C, no-doc, no documentation. Hmm. And, and so you don't have to produce tax returns. You don't have to produce employment receipts. Um, and so in that particular case, uh, it's, it, it satisfies the people that don't have good serviceability. Hmm. Of course, there's a price to pay for that. And, uh, I mean... It I think it's all factored into your fees, though, though, isn't it? That price, yeah, well, you pay, pay a higher interest. Yeah. But you pay a higher interest because the finance is taking a higher, uh, higher risk. Mm. But these aren't normal bank loans, the no-docs these days. They're, they're done from what you might call uh, non-bank uh, financiers who will do those. And, uh, I mean, typically, I, I, I know who you're talking about there when you say one of our students recently mm. got one. Mm. And that required a uh, 25% deposit. So you can't do it on a you know, 10 or 20 like a bank. It's 25. And uh, the interest rate was probably about oh, probably about 2.5% uh, to 3% above the normal bank rate. I actually bumped into his financier <laughs> last week and he said, what a, what a cracker, because it was before the interest rate hike. So he's mm. got a really great deal on a no-doc, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but the thing about non-banks is they're not tied to the RBA rates mm, like a bank. I forgot about that. They don't even have to put their rates up if, they, if they're happy with their, with their margins. Banks will. Banks will jump on every opportunity mm. because they're low interest rates. Uh, lenders, uh, remember a normal retail bank makes their money by lending at a low interest rate for a long period of time. So any chance they can get to put the rates up, they will. And they're not tied to the RBA. They can put them up any time. Uh, whereas non-banks tend, tend to be a little bit different. 
So, yeah, that's um, And that's the interest on those, Bob, is capitalised? Explain that one. Uh, well, no, it's it's like a quasi-retail loan. Mm. So you do pay... I like pay, that word, by the way, quasi. Quasi, yeah. <laughs> quasi. So, look, some of them do capitalise the interest. Uh, mm. Some of them you have to pay. But then what, what they sometimes do is take the interest out up front as well. Oh. So if it was like a 12-month 12, 12 uh, no-doc loan... Mm. They might calculate the interest that becomes part of the loan, and they pull it, pull the interest out in advance, a bit like bank bills. Although we don't see many bank bills done these days, so where the interest is like it becomes part of the loan, it's pulled out, it's paid up front, and you don't have to find the interest anymore. Uh, and then the the loan will just run its term. It's a it's a stopgap measure because when you get your development permit, say we're going to do like my three townhouse project, so you might use a form of retail loan to buy the site. Now, if you're good enough to get a bank loan, use a bank loan. But if, you, if you're not, if your serviceability is a real issue, think about a no-doc loan. That'll get you through to the point where you've got your approvals. Uh, and then when you go to need more money for construction, that's when you can get a, well, you could run with that same lender perhaps, but you could otherwise swing over to a, uh, to probably a commercial loan. And it doesn't have to be with the same people. And that commercial loan could be with a normal bank mm. where the interest is capitalised. Or if you don't qualify for that, then there's still plenty of non-banks around. So you can do it. And non-banks, because the interest is capitalised, they, they don't look too closely at your income. And of course, like the question that um, you've asked was about your transitioning mm. into semi-retirement. So and you've got enough to live on. So you've obviously, you, you, you're a little bit financially savvy, we're thinking. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I think that like coming up with, say, a no-doc loan, 25% equity, it doesn't have to be cash. It could yeah. be in another property uh, as yeah, well. So if there happened to be another unencumbered property, well, if there happened to be another unencumbered property, for instance, you might have a pretty good chance of, of getting a even a bank loan because mm. you, you'll have a lot of security and you won't be lending to the maximum loan-to-value ratio. And so that makes banks a lot more comfortable as well when they've got lots of security to sit on. So it, it, it really ultimately is a, is a good conversation with a smart finance broker. There you go. Um, but you can do it. I mean, you could use uh, no docs, like uh, the particular uh, student you're talking about. And the reason they use no doc is it's a very complex structure. Mm. Uh, banks like things pretty simple. Uh, they're happy. Oh, yeah, the minute it gets complex there. Ah, yeah, yeah. This was a complex joint venture. It was a joint venture arrangement where one of the parties was a company that had eight directors and eight shareholders. It was always going to be too complex for the normal <laughs> bank. Uh, they and, wouldn't get the head so, that sort of stuff. No, okay. so we had to go to like a retail non-bank. Mm. And uh, and that's what... And, and because time was of the essence, there was, there was a short time frame on the contract, uh, the, the no-doc was the way to go. And how good was the, the finance broker? He was good. Finance broker is a gun. Yeah. Uh, and it took, uh, I think it was 48 or 72 hours to have a full approval. Excellent. Last question, Bob, because uh, we don't want to go on too long. No. No. Unless you're finding it really interesting. Oh, we are. We always try and keep under a certain amount of time because we know people are driving and if you go too long, then you never mm. come back to it. Last question. We've been debating. There's no dear and no one, so it's, but it's from Brett. Oh. Uh, we've been debating evaluating a development deal. Some of our folks say return on costs is better than IRR, which is the internal rate of return. Bob will explain that. What are your thoughts and why? Oh, that's an interesting one. Very technical. I, I, what do you call them? Acronyms? What do you call them? Acronyms? Acronyms. Got to love a good acronym. Got to love a good The IRR. So First of all, explain what an IRR is. Well, yes. let's start with an ROC. Return on cost. 
sometimes called. So, so ROC versus an IRR, return yeah. on cost versus an internal rate of uh, internal rate of return. Yeah, that's what we'll talk about. Yeah. So I better define what they are, I guess, before we talk about it. So one one that's pretty common to developers, and certainly anyone who's done our courses, is what we call ROC, return on cost. So what that is simply, it's your profit expressed as a percentage of your total costs. So if your total costs were a million dollars to do a project and you made $200,000 profit, so 200,000 as a percentage of a million is 20%. And that's return on cost, sometimes called margin on cost and sometimes called the developer's margin, but that's what it is. Internal rate of return, actually without making it too complex, it calculates the return that you get, let's say on a development project, but taking into account time. You see the ROC simply is your profit expressed as a percentage of your costs, but, but it doesn't take into, into mm. account time. So, so what you could have done with that money uh, the, with the, so like say you've got your 200,000 but it took four years to get it yeah. versus uh, it taking one year to get it so what else could have you d- have done with that 200,000 in those missing three years that's yeah. kind of the difference there yeah. does that explain it then well yeah and, for, and, for the layman yeah. lay women and what you just said um, you know making $200,000 in four years versus making $200,000 in one year hmm. which would you rather do You'd rather make the 200000 in one year. One year, please, Bob. <laughs> one year. Yeah. So when we do return on cost, which is a very common thing, and look, commercial financiers look at return on cost. Mm-hmm. We, you know, they might say, well, look, we we need at least 18%. Well, it's no good if you've got 10, you're not going to get the loan. So they have a particular target in mind. And that'll vary a bit with different products. Um, but but it doesn't take into account time. And, and so that's the issue. So as an investor, if you're a real dyed-in-the-wool investor, and you're looking at, is my money working hard enough for me? Mm. Then you'd, you'd look at the internal rate of return. Now, in, finances do also look at the internal rate of return. Mm. Uh, like, if you had a project that stretched on for years, uh, and like the, the one you mentioned, made 200,000 in four years versus made 200,000 in a year. Uh, that, was, in, that was fictitious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The internal rate of return on the long one mm. would be quite low. Because what would it be? You're quite mathematical. Oh, sorry, look, sorry. I'll tell, I can tell you what you're looking for. Um, like it, The internal rate of return that banks and finances often like is that 20 to 25% internal rate of return, mm. but the, the ROC might be you know, 18 to 20. It, it, and if you've got a long, drawn-out project, uh, even though the return on cost might be showing 18 or 20, the internal rate of return could be 10%. Right. And so that's not a good outcome. No. Uh, and and banks do look a bit at the internal rate of return. It's a complex formula. Mm. Um, when I studied valuation for about five minutes once, um, you did have to learn how to do that. Inter- you know, net present value of money and internal rates return makes your head spin. So the, but, I suppose the question, Bob, which is great, is like some of their folks, must be friends, say that the internal uh, rate of return is better than the return on cost. And what are your thoughts? Well, it's really about... Some of that could be you're factoring risk factor, you're factoring in um, time. There's a lot of factors, yeah. but I would always go... Well, I, I'd always look at ROC because that decides whether I'm going to get finance or not. Oh, so start so, with ROC. Yeah. Well, yeah. And look, some ex- probably more expensive uh, property 
development feasibility programs, like mm. a state master, for instance, um, they calculate the internal rate of return. Okay. There's, so just to be clear, marginal cost, profit as a percentage of your total development cost. If a bank says, you know, we're looking for a minimum of 18%, then you, that's what you need. Um, the internal rate of return could be could be anything depending on time. Mm. I mean, it might it might be twenty percent, but if it's a long drawn out thing, it could be ten. That might might be a bit of a negative for finance, even though the, the return on cost might be okay. Uh, so I'm always looking, and a nice comfortable level is sort of twenty to twenty five percent internal rate of return on a project. Another thing that confuses people, I don't want to make it more complex than it needs to be, but it, it, it's a thing called ROE, return on equity. Equity, yeah. And so all that is really, it's the amount of money that you put into a project compared to your profit, but not generally not taking into account time, because if you took into account time, it would be an IRO. Mm. So if you did a four-pack of townhouses and you put in $500,000 and you made a profit of $500,000, but your money was out there for two years, like your, your return on equity is 100% because you made 500,000 profit on 500,000. But because it was out there for two, let's say it was out there for exactly two years, the, the actual interest rate return is, is, is closer to, um, you know, to half of that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, return on cost, return on equity, internal rate of return. So back to the question, I guess, uh, I, I, it's good to look at both factors. Mm. I don't think you can say, just look at this one, just look at that one. Yeah, it's very. It's like most things. It's very people specific. It's very mm. where you are, what you're doing. Like it, everything is specific. It's like, I mean, we currently have a project where we're offering our great interest return uh, for self managed super fund cash. A little plug here if you want to. If you want to know more about investing, you're welcome to um, send me an email. I do all the investor liaison work. But you do. And we also have people that invest with our mentoring students because they know that Bob's holding their hand. So we have two opportunities for investors, and they're just very different. Hmm. One has a higher level of risk. One, you know, still minimised risk. Um, one has one is first mortgage security. One's not. There's just two different things that go on there, and that is so specific to your you. It's mm. so specific to the person that I speak to, what they are wanting. I'm, yeah. I'm never going to sell somebody into anything they don't want or need. No. I don't want to sell it. It's an opportunity. If you like the opportunity, <laughs> jump in. But, you know, yeah. it's, it's, I think it's so specific to the person. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you know, returns relative to risk. Yes. You know, if you want a really high return, you're going to have to take a really high level of risk. You want low level of risk, you can still get a decent return. I mean, compared to the banks, mm. anything's great. Mm. You know, banks are offering you like one or one percent or something, and you know, you can still get first mortgage security for like nine percent. Well, why wouldn't you? That mm. sort of thing. But yeah, individual. We're offering more than that for first mortgage security. Don't, don't you worry about that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Hey, Contact Bob, us if you look if you want to invest in one of our projects. Absolutely. Yeah, we know what we're doing, Bob. Especially. We'll tell you all about it. <laughs> hey, um, I think we should wind it up here, Bob. Um, we have done. A solid time. We like people to get from start to finish. If you're interested in knowing more about anything we have to offer, investing-wise or our courses, investing-wise, email us just at admin at propertymastermind.com.au. The courses we have available, jump on. Our education program is changing and we're inserting a new problem, program that you might be oh, might like to be yes. part of, redoing the website. So jump. If you'd like to know more about what we offer, propertymastermind.com.au. We have an investment book you can download from our website. And we've got the, uh, one Facebook page and a few Facebook groups. So 
anything we can do to help, reach out. We love to hear from you. Thank you to the three people that emailed in the questions. And um, we'll see you next week for episode 56. Thank you, Bob. Oh, yes, 56. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye.